Maharaj, Hare Krishna, nice to see you again. Good morning. Um, so, question that I have that I've kind of been thinking about for the past week is uh, kind of in relation to trying to understand what the Gaudiya Vaishnav answer to the philosophical problem of evil is, because based on our theology, it's a little different than I imagine what the Christian or like uh, Judeo Christian answer to it would be but I guess some ideas that I've had are sort of like well since you know karma the law of karma exists in the material world that kind of addresses like well when a living entity receives suffering then it kind of is the result of their past actions but one thing I've kind of been thinking about though is um, reading some of the works of Srila Sridhar Maharaj and how he talks about from the absolute perspective that um mercy or love is kind of transcendent to the idea of mundane, you know, justice or cause and effect of karma and that sort of thing. That I guess I'm just sort of wondering um, in that regard, why um, even if say, for example, somebody might deserve a certain karmic result, why I guess um, in a simplistic way, why, why, uh, Krishna doesn't just drag even the most degraded demoniac entities back to Goloka, even against their own will. Um, but I guess uh, the only thing I can think of to answer that is uh, um, that in order to reside in Goloka, one needs to have love for God, and that isn't really something that you can force on anyone. So I don't know. Those are just some ideas. I, I don't know. I guess just speculation ultimately on my part, but I, I just wanted to hear your answer on like the problem of evil. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, and um, I don't think uh, anyone could satisfy all the minds, if you will, uh, out there, um, regardless of how you speak about that as different traditions, traditions do. But that said, um, from the Gaudi perspective and really, in a broader sense, from the Hindu perspective, of course, um, then the, the blame, if you will, or the burden or the, the, uh, the genesis of evil and uh, suffering is, the, uh, um, is squarely placed on the shoulders of the jivas, not on, not on God. This is uh, discussed uh, 
Krishna brings this up in the fifth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? And it's addressed also in the sutras of Vyas. There the question arises as to whether or not God is, um, is, uh, is biased. Because we see that some people are well off and some people are poor. Some people are born well off and some people are born poor. So at a glance, at first glance, it would appear that God is, is, in, is not impartial, but he's partial to some, not to others. And the sutra clearly, uh, sutras clearly answer that uh, question by stating that no, the, the inequality that we see in life is, is uh, a result of karma. Hmm? And then the question is further asked, what about at the beginning when it all started and the sutras say that there is no beginning. So that is this, of course, a cyclical perspective on time rather than a linear perspective on time, which is um, a very interesting concept in itself. So um, karma is the cause of good and evil. And of course, that's another question because um, people are concerned about the evil. We're also concerned about the good. <laughs> we think the good is also evil in, in a sense and that karmically speaking, it perpetuates birth, birth and death. Um, but again, um, karma has no beginning. World cycles have no beginning. They come, the, world, the universes expand and contract, expand and contract. And, and, and that expanding and contracting has no beginning. So this is a very different uh, perspective um, than the linear perspective that, um, that, that, that answers, you know, in one sense, one of the hardest questions, what comes first, the tree or the seed? So from a linear perspective, you can't answer that question. But from a cyclical perspective, you can. You can say both. Which is, a, you know, meant to kind of take you out of your limits of your uh, capacity to reason and its ability to, to answer everything or the, for reality to answer to the limits of your reason. That's unreasonable. Um, so, uh, again, from a cyclical point of view, it's the tree, it's, or it's the seed, it's, it's both. There, 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 there is no beginning. Um, and this example is given that to support, you know, to help, an, an analogy to help us kind of get a grasp on beginninglessness. Um, the tree and the seed. In the Western world, it's the chicken and the egg. Uh, same idea, which came first. Um, so, because the world cycles have no beginning, then karma can't have a beginning because you can't have a world without karma. Hmm? God is also beginningless. The jivas are also beginningless. And so, Therefore, evil, if you will, uh, or suffering, same principle, 
basically is squarely placed on the shoulders of the jiva. Now, that means that the jiva, the world is made up of, of jivas and, and matter. So jiva shakti and maya shakti. These are the two. And the glue that kind of bonds them together is, is, is karma. Hmm? And karma is, in a, is a response of nature or matter to the way in which the jivas deal with her. Hmm? So when the jiva t- exploits matter for its own perceived purposes, independent of the purpose of God, hmm? then nature reacts in a particular way. That's called karma. Hmm? And that's called, that's justice. So from God's point of view, we would think that God needs to be just, right? But we also think that God should be merciful. But God cannot be merciful unless there's justice, because mercy is an overriding of justice. If there's no justice to override, then there's no mercy. And if God's not just, well, then he's defective. So he's both. God's just and God's merciful. He's just by way of allowing karma, allowing nature, his maya shakti, to respond in ways that, that are appropriate or correspond with the actions of the jivas. He's got a hands-off policy. He has a relationship with all of his different shaktis. So maya shakti is one of his shaktis. He has an indirect relationship with her. He doesn't interfere, stop her, close her down. Mm-hmm. And her purpose is, from a broader perspective, also positive because she provides negative impetus for the jiva to move away from exploitation. Because if you see that there are consequences for your actions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then then you're going to perhaps act differently as. Uh, so material nature is, is indirectly or pushing us towards Bhagawan and providing negative impetus. Things just don't work, quite work here, hmm? um, and so forth. Then the saints and the sadhus, they bring the positive influence, right? By their example, by their teachings, and so forth. So that's also part of the world. Just like karma has no beginning in the world, so... Um, bhakti is also in the world because there are always sadhakas and saints and devotees in the world. So the world is equipped with negative impetus and positive impetus for spiritual life, for bringing an end to the the problem of material suffering. And God is therefore just by allowing nature to do what she wants through his devotees they interfere with that to some extent by being agents of Krishna's mercy. Sadhus are really suitable agents for uh, bestowing mercy upon jivas because they have experience of the suffering, therefore they have empathy. Hmm? God has no experience of suffering. If he did, he'd be ignorant. 
because ignorance is the cause of suffering. So God's not ignorant. He has no experience of suffering. But through his devotees, who are his Kripa Shakti, manifestations of his Kripa, his mercy, they have experience of suffering. Therefore, they have empathy for the jivas, and therefore they try to resolve the problem, the karmic implications of the jiva, by ministering to them, setting a good example, teaching them the scriptures, and so forth. So God is just, and through the agency of his devotees, he's merciful to the people of the world. And they get a chance to bring an end uh, to their um, uh, karma, if you will. But the world has no beginning. It's, I've given an ex- analogy to compare God to a fire, so smoke is part of the fire. So, so are the sparks, so is the heat and the light. God is the fire, his internal energy, bhakti is the heat and light, has feeling and it's luminous, knowledge, sambit, and ladini. And uh, the jiva is the spark, which, which, whose light can be obscured by the smoke, which is the maya shakti. So this is God. All these things are God, him and his shaktis. And, um, and uh, so he's not responsible for the suffering in the world. He's just. We're responsible. In nature, we've acted, and nature responds accordingly. But he seeks to bring an end to the suffering at the same time through the agency of his devotees who then override the justice, if you will, by giving mercy. Now, if you step back a little further, it's explained uh, in Chaitanya Charitamrita that in, in Vaikuntha, Narayan has, despite being absorbed in, in his leelas in Vaikuntha, with muktas, with liberated souls, he has a desire to bestow mukti. He can't bestow mukti in that realm. So in order that the desire for Narayan to bestow mukti may have fruition, in order for him to be loving in all respects, which includes compassion, you can only have compassion towards someone who, well, is suffering, right? Muktas aren't suffering. So where's the compassion in Vaikuntha? Overall, he's compassionate to his devotees who have gone there. They know he's merciful. But the, where, where can he express the, 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 the compassion? There has to be a realm for that as well. So there's a realm that corresponds, in one sense, with the compassion of Bhagwan. Therefore, Mahavishnu, who's the expansion of Narayan, the first avatar, the crossing down, who presides over the material nature, he becomes many. In Vaikuntha, there's a, there's a, there's a profusion of, of jivas who are muktas. Under the influence of the Maya Shakti, where God also presides, as Mahavishnu, he becomes many. That's the jivas. And of course, this has no beginning in time, but what I'm saying is that that function of the material world 
under the jurisdiction of Mahavishnu, the one becoming many. It's not an event in time, but uh, we're limited by language to uh, make it sound as if it is. Uh, that whole event is called Shristi Lila, the Lila of creation. So in a, from a far-reaching perspective, the purpose of that Lila is that there may be, uh, that, that God may be compassionate. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, the world's about compassion. We say the world has no, no purpose. It's only just Lila. But compassion has, is, is a purposeless action as well, in a sense. It's not out of any necessity, in other words. Mm -hmm that one uh, is compassionate, one personal necessity. It's, it's, a give, it's an overflowing, right? Um, so you don't have a need to be kind, or you should be kind, <laughs> but I mean, kindness is not a need. Kindness is, a, is, 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 is an overflowing of one's own fullness hmm? that is then shared with others. So, the material world provides that facility. Um, that's a kind of lila called Shristi Lila. Lila in which Narayan gets to play the role as, as, as the compassionate one. So through Mahavishnu, so many avatars come, the Vedas are manifest through Brahma and so on and so forth. So, and it's all set up, right, for to save the jivas. The world's forgiving the jivas who are Tatasta Shakti emanating from Mahavishnu, a chance to be liberated. So it's all a, a drama in a sense. Now, from another point of view, within the Gaudi perspective and the yoga perspective, of course, evil, or let's call it suffering, okay, um, is, well, really all in the mind. It's pretty hard to refute that. If your mind is somewhere else, you won't feel it. That's pretty much how you try to get out of suffering. You can try to think of something else while you're suffering. <laughs> so it's all, it's, all, it's, it's all the suffering is in the mind. And the whole teaching of yoga is, is to how, to how to address the problem of the restless mind, to control it, to capture it, to stop it from thinking, which is the end of suffering. So, those are a couple of answers. Does that help? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, that answers it from a variety of different angles. Yeah, I think uh, that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, that some books have been written about this, about the Odyssey, the problem of evil, um, looking at all different traditions and so forth, and that uh, the Hindu tradition is comes out on top as giving the best possible answers overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, uh, that makes sense. Uh, thank you, Maharaj. Okay. Hi. Um, the next question is from Dr. Prima Das from Argentina, and he just asked me to ask the question. Um, he wanted you to talk about the importance of having faith in the Shastra as a means to support your bhakti. Yes. Um, 
I think that you have to look at that uh, question from the broadest uh, perspective. And what I mean by that is that um, we have to look at Shastra as an example of the principle of revelation. So to use Pujapad Sridhar example, the finite, with your finite mind, how can you know the infinite? In a comprehensive sense, to know means to understand, to, to control it, so to speak. I've got it. So how can a finite mind capture the infinite? Well, it can't. But if the infinite chooses out of its infinite capacity to reveal itself to the finite mind, then the finite mind can know. On its own, it cannot know the infinite. But if the infinite wants to be known, well, it has infinite capacity to, do, to override the, the limitations of the finite mind and make itself known. So this is the kind of overarching principle of revelation. If the, the whole of reality is to be known by a living being, we might consider that it itself is living. We consider ourselves greater than the, than the, than the inanimate. So why should we consider that the whole of reality is, is inanimate? We're animate. So it's alive. It has a life. That's our perspective. We're, we are not, we're more an, animists than, than machinists, I guess. We should, um, so we, we, we see life everywhere, right? Rather than reducing life just to a machine. Physical, for, natural forces, and so forth. So, so if that reality wants to make itself known, then it can be known the whole, the entirety. Otherwise, not. Now, that said, of course, it is said, and wisely so, that if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. Therefore, the way to understand the whole is to approach it with gratitude, which is the beginning of love. That's just the beginning of it. Say thank you. You tell your kids, say thank you. Say please. Okay, now say thank you. So this is the beginning of love. Hmm? Showing appreciation, gratitude. Hmm? So if we um, approach reality, I'm speaking, of course, in very broad terms, from a loving perspective, from a perspective of gratitude, that for example, I acknowledge that in order for my, my to see, I require the sun. In order to speak, I require the wind um, and so forth. So the macrocosm, of, the microcosm of myself has a relationship with the macrocosm of, of nature. And it's a relationship in which myself as a functioning microcosm of nature is dependent upon the macrocosm in order for me to function. So I do Surya Namaskar in the morning, for example. I respect the sun 
without which I couldn't see. So this is just a broad way, if you will, in which Hinduism advocates um, approaching reality with an attitude of, uh, of, of gratitude. And then we understand, well, I'm not just independent for my senses to do whatever I want. It's not, it's, it's my mouth and I can say what I want. There's a song like that. Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Um, no. Um, you can't say what you want. You can't speak in any language unless you try. And then you get, and you get this. And that, this arrangement is made in that. And so on. Whatever. So um, we're not ind independent. We're dependent beings. Um, and... Um, and so the bigger, so when we approach in this way with a beginning with gratitude, this, this, is, this is a way then by which we can understand all the secrets of, of nature. And the biggest secret of nature, material nature, is that she has a soul, which is us. But again, the world is a combination of the jivas and jiva shakti and maya shakti. The jiva shakti doesn't know itself. It's identified itself with the maya shakti. But if it serves the Maya Shakti you know, or, or lives in this world with a sense of gratitude, there's a whole system for this, in course, in Hindu scriptures, then in due course, that's called, that's to live dharmically, right? To live dharmically. So when you inquire and, 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 and um, act accordingly, dharmically, it's the beginning of acting in a loving way in relation to nature. And in due course, then she reveals that she has a soul and it's you. Mm -hmm. That's from Dharma Jignasu, inquiry into being dharmic, results ultimately in inquiry into Brahman, my likeness to Brahman, that I'm not part of material nature. Mm -hmm. So that's a big secret that nature has. And, and, and if we, approach nature with gratitude, with love, then she, she'll tell you all her secrets. And once you know that you're an Atma, boy, that is, opens up a lot, a lot of possibilities. Many more possibilities lie in the Atma. Unlimitedly more, poss unlimited more possibilities lie in the Atma than what possibilities lie in material nature. We're busy trying to manipulate material nature to, to find newer ways to be happy and comfortable and, uh, and fulfilled and so forth. All those efforts uh, fall short, even if they were all put together into one big pill. Hmm? The Atmas is, is, is complete, satisfied in itself, independent of nature. Hmm? And that's just the beginning of its prospect. Hmm? What, 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 are, what are the possibilities in the world of consciousness that the Atmas is part of? Wow. So, so Bhakti, of course, speaks about that. Most traditions speak about the difference between Atma and matter and, and leave it at that, which is, which is a lot, but so much more. Hmm. We come for, we, we, we comes to the fore in Bhakti. What is the prospect of the Atma in a world of consciousness, for the unit of consciousness? Hmm. So it's a big, so this, so, so anyway, revelation is this idea that, that reality will make itself known to us on its own terms. 
So scripture is, an, is, a, is, a, is a, a particular expression then of that revelation. So the importance of revelation in the broadest sense hmm, um, is, as I say, without, if God or reality doesn't want itself to be known, it can't be known. If it wants itself to be known, it can be known. Hmm. Um, so, and then, and then the, the, the text itself, scripture itself, I look at that as, as I've said before, as an, as an answer. The scripture is an answer, and we are a question. Human life is a question. The question is why, why, meaning, purpose, why? That's what we're all about. And, and that question is a qualitative question. It's not a quantitative question. Like, what is your velocity? What is your depth? What is your width, your height? Those are quantitative questions that we can ask about nature, which doesn't have a qualitative component. Nature has a, uh, the physical world has a quantitative, is a quantitative reality. Consciousness is a qualitative reality. So quality, qualia, you know, qualitative experiences. Hmm? This is what hard to figure out for the materialist. How to reduce qualitative experiences to the physical? So it's, a, it's 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 the biggest challenge for materialism that they won't rise to the occasion of. Um, that it won't rise to the occasion of. But um, this question is like what we are as humans, because in our perspective. The Atma, which is independent of matter, but it's filtered by matter. So whatever, according to your karma, you'd say a body, and, and, and then the body filters the consciousness. It allows it to express itself to one extent or another relative to the karma. And so in the human life, of course, it, it's it's facilitated for expressing itself further. It can ask it can ask the question why rather than how to eat, how to sleep. Treat the animals aren't asking why. We ask why. That's what's what's the, the difference. So human life needs an answer to why, and the why it's a qualitative question. So it can't come from nature itself, which is quantitative. So that's what revelation is. Then Shastra scripture is the answer. To the question, it comes from the world of consciousness. It's a reply. And it's, in, in the words of Sridhar it's Om, which is the beginning of the whole revelation, in front of Omkar, is a big affirmation which says, yes, what you're looking for, the more that you can't seem to find, that doesn't meet the eye and the mind, you can have it. You are it. You are the more. You are more than nature. You are. Hmm. There's more to life than 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 just the uh, physical forces and so forth. Hmm. Now, and then many other verses explain how to how to how to arrive at that. Right. So, um, without revelation, then we're left with our instruments. to bring a solution to the problems of life, but the instruments themselves are a product 
of the problems of life. In other words, our mind, our bodies, unto themselves, our reasoning power unto itself, from our perspective, is all a karmic production. Hmm? So the karmic production doesn't, it doesn't produce tools that are suitable unto themselves to get out from underneath the problem. They are the problem. Hmm? We want to use our tools to get at to, to, uh, physical, mental, intellectual prowess to solve the problems, but they are the problem. <laughs> so problem. <laughs> uh, therefore, from outside of that comes help. And then they can become useful. Physical, mental, and intellectual prowess can become useful in relation to revelation, to understanding its implications, according to time and circumstance, how to, what is their purpose, uh, how to apply oneself to arrive at the solution, and, and so forth. So the importance of the scripture is such, and of course, the, from our perspective, Chaitanya and Nityananda Prabhu have come to the world, and they have come to bestow praying, and as explained, the way in which they do that is bring, in, bring us in touch with the, with the Bhagavad, which is the center hub around which all the scriptures orbit and will be understood in context. Hmm? After all, the Vedanta Sutra is the first um, example of theology in the world. Theology is the attempt to make sense out of revelation. Hmm? So long before the Christians were theologizing, hmm? Vedanta Sutra was written to theologize about all the different sounds in the Upanishads, what they mean, the Puranas, because they seem to say this over here, they have that over there, this speaking in this way here. So they're speaking in different psychologies and different ways at different times. So the Sutras is an attempt to like bring a concordance uh, to the, and show the concerted purpose of the, of the vast body of the Eastern Revelation. And Srimad Bhagavatam, of course, as celebrated in other scriptures, is a natural commentary on the, on the sutras of Vyas. So it has this very prominent um, role. And, and, and therefore, other scriptures, statements, will be understood in relation to the Bhagavatam to, be, to properly understand the whole thing. And so uh, our Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, has made that, that book as his heart. And the Goswamis have said all their commentaries, all their explanations are based on, 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 on the Bhagavatam. This is the main, main text. And, um, and, of course, comparatively speaking, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's theologically and philosophically very rich compared to other Puranas and Upanishads and so forth as well. And there we find a very distinct... Uh, um, uh, worldview that is a meta narrative in which love is the ideal. Hard to argue against that. Hmm? Transcendental love. Hmm? Love means movement, and it means it's it's a, it's a wise kind of a movement. Hmm? Um, so there must be an interaction interaction between us and the absolute in transcendence. That's what we call Leela. So I'm speaking in broader terms and gradually, gradually we become more specific. 
And, you know, therefore, then when we come within the Bhagavatam, the 10th canon of the Bhagavatam and the Vrindavan Leelas, we, we find the full import of the word Leela in relation to Bhagavan. Just playing has no purpose to fulfill. Hmm? No obligations, purpose. Just love. So then you can, you can enter there. So all these things, how would we know without scripture? So therefore, the importance of scripture. Then, um, as we are practicing members of the Sampradaya, um, it's important that uh, that we understand the scripture in terms of what it says bhakti is, how it's executed, what it's what the goal is. Hmm? Um, it it gives us a conceptual orientation out of which the action of bhakti it fosters the action of bhakti, which bears the fruit then of praying. So um, it's, it's very important to have the person Bhagavatam and the book Bhagavatam. I was saying going to Thai, bring us in touch with the book Bhagavatam and the person Bhagavatam through which they give, they bestow praying. So um, scripture is important. It's like a passive agent of divinity and the sadhu is important, like an active agent of divinity that can bring the scripture to life in all circumstances, show its relevance, um, um, reveal to us what's there that we could not find on our own, perhaps. Um, now, this is a very, you know, it's very easy to get a, a, a rote kind of a, you know, uh, memorized, literal take on the scripture, but, but that's not um, what, it, what it means. To, uh, to, to truly follow it and, and, and understand it. And when, when, it, when that happens, then, then, you, then you get a static kind of idea of revelation and um, it, doesn't, it doesn't deliver, if you will. And you might start to dismiss it and lose faith in it, so, but you need a living understanding and that can be gained through good association can bring it to life in all, all circumstances to reveal the life within, within the texts and so forth. So scripture is important, but the, the sadhu is in one sense more important. He doesn't disagree with the scripture. She doesn't disagree, but, but um, sheds light on it in ways that we could not otherwise do our, ourselves. And, and as I say, it brings home the relevance and importance. So I mean, this is, a, this is a message from God. This is a letter from God to you. I'm just reading it and translating it and telling you the implications and so forth. It's kind of the idea. It's the answer to the question that human life is. So scripture's important. It's not important just to memorize in a dogmatic way, but to understand the underlying implications. That takes time and realization, and it requires being under good guidance. I hope that helps as an answer for, was it the question again? The question was to talk about the importance of faith. Who, who, who asked? Oh, it was um, Dr. Prem. Dr. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. What else? All right, okay. Um, so then we have another Prem, Das. Das has a question. 
Yes, Brindas. Hare Krishna, Guru Maharaj. Uh, I have a question about the chitta. About what? Um, is this chitta just about the chitta? About the chitta, chitta. Uh, is this uh, is this chitta um, uh, just a date storage disk? Uh, how does uh, this chitta works? Could you say something more about? Yeah. Uh, chitta is one of the four um, ingredients of the antakarna or the subtle body. So you have chitta, buddhi, manas and ahankar. So chitta is consciousness-like. It is the mahatattva in microscopic form. So the mahatattva is the pradhan or material nature in equilibrium still then activated by consciousness, Mahatattva. Hmm? Very, very subtle form of matter that when in touch with consciousness, starts to function like consciousness. Just like, for example, if I have a metal sheet and I shine light on it, it will reflect light. Hmm? So it'll start to act like a, a light to some extent, right? Hmm? So there's a subtle, subtle form of matter that when in touch with consciousness starts to function quasi-consciously, like consciousness. Hmm? And a microcosm of that is part of the subtle body of every jiva. Hmm? And so it's the awareness function of the subtle body. Just like, let's say, we hear a sound, we become aware of a sound. That's chitta. I'm aware of the sound. Buddhi then is the function that discriminates what is the sound. Oh, it's the sound of a flute. Then manas, the seat of desire and emotion, makes the determination, I like the sound of the flute, or I don't like the sound of the flute. Mm -hmm. And all this is occurring within an overall identity that we call ahankar. Mm -hmm. So chitta is the function of, it's kind of like quasi-conscious, it's awareness. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's uh, uh, um, and in that awareness, then impressions are stored, right? Become aware of something means I get an impression. So it's a storehouse, as you said, of so many impressions, and the impressions stored in the chitta, they, they, they serve to. Uh, compel us hmm, to act in certain ways, to think in certain ways, and so forth. We are like, you know, a composite of all of these impressions in terms of how we function and so on. So 
This is all kind of an artificial life, if you will. Scientists want to create a perfect robot. God already did. It's us, actually. The biological and psychological complex is a robot. Now, that's not all we are. We're an atma. So the atma has will and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so it's already been, it's, it's, it's already there. Mm -hmm. um, and now because there's awareness, this is an interesting point too, because there's awareness in the subtle body, chitta, therefore in relation to, to, to um, gross matter, mm -hmm. there, are, there are consequences. Awareness brings with it consequence. So karma is related to chitta in that sense, because I'm aware, I'm conscious, mm -hmm. then there are, there are consequences. So material nature responds with consequences that corresponds with the chitta. If there was no chitta, there would be no, in one sense, there'd be no karma. Um, really the, 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 the real uh, force behind karma is also in, in, in intention, which requires a, a, a awareness. So uh, chitta is, an, is like an artificial form of consciousness. Prabhupada sometimes describes it as material consciousness contaminated consciousness, something like that. Yeah, it's, it, it's this subtle, subtle form of matter that has the capacity to reflect the light of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, of course, in all the genuine spiritual traditions is to clear the chitta of the, the samskars, the vrittis, vasanas, impressions, mm -hmm. like impressions, form samskars, vrittis, a collection of them that are similar, form into a samskar, an impression, which becomes a vasana, a desire, an urge, and we function accordingly. So the way in which the chitta is cleansed, if you will, in bhakti, or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, is through sankirtan. And when he speaks about sankirtan, he says, it cleanses the mirror of the chitta, which is like a mirror, you shed a light on it, you, you put an image on it, it appears that the image is there on the mirror. The image is actually here, but it reflects the image. Mm -hmm. So we take the chitta and we turn it on, focus it on Krishna. We get the image of Krishna, impressions about Krishna's qualities, form, impressions about bhakti, and so forth. And these then cleanse away and retire material impressions, a steady stream, steady stream of these bhakti impressions is going to remove other impressions. Just like if you take a bottle of ink and you pour milk into it and you keep pouring milk into it. When you pour milk in it, what's going to come out overflow is milk and ink, milk and ink, milk and ink, milk and ink, milk and ink. Milk and ink, milk and ink. Gradually, Eventually, there's going to be only milk coming out, right? So bhakti works in this way with regard to cleansing the chitta. It removes the material impressions, and in the context of doing that, it replaces them with spiritual impressions. That means that there will be action 
in bhakti, the action of love. Rather than just clearing the impressions, then you have nothing to do. You sit still, you're peaceful. You're no longer troubled by these material impressions that are driving you to go this way and that way and so forth. But here now we have uh, uh, spiritual impressions. So there's movement and transcendence when transcendence is approached through bhakti as opposed to jnana, which creates a stillness, puts to rest the troubles of material existence, brings you shanti, 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 peace. But on top of the peace, bhakti builds uh, a, a temple of love. So arrest your chitta, that's the idea, with, uh, with bhakti. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Um, Sharda. Oh, I'm gonna. She's gonna need help. I'm muting her. I will find you and unmute you. Okay. You're on. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Greetings from Saranagati. <laughs> Maharaj, um, I have a question. Um, when I met you a year, a year ago, you said to um, get one of your books, which I did, The Sacred Preface. In there, it says a lot about consciousness, and we've talked about that. We have mentioned that so far as well. Um, so it's one of those words which we can't define easily, as you say, because we're in the material world. And um, it's very interesting to my dad because he's both Vaishnav and he was a neuropsychiatrist and they always used to talk about consciousness in their lectures and they couldn't define it. Um, and I just wanted, I left, I left that book in England with him, but I thought I read in there somewhere um, that it said that a statement that Krishna consciousness is the consciousness of consciousness, <laughs> that we cannot define the word consciousness. But if we approach it through bhakti, as you just say, not through gyan, then we can feel it. We, can, we can't define it in words. There's so many things we can't define in words, transcendental meaning. You know? um, but um, I was just wondering, is, is that what you said? Is that what yeah, I you think said? I, I, think I, I think I've said that there. It's a way of saying something I said earlier today, that you know, it's one thing to know that I'm consciousness and... Uh, Therefore, I, I transcend time and space as a, as a unit of consciousness. Um, but then what is, the, what is the prospect of consciousness in the world of consciousness? So Krishna consciousness in that sense is the consciousness of the consciousness. Yeah. Well, in other words, it's one, thing to, be, yeah, it's one thing to be conscious <laughs> of something material. Hmm? You know, consciousness requires an object. And then there's this idea well, that's a problem, okay. So we want to remove our consciousness from material objects. And so then the school of Gyan posits this idea of contentless consciousness. So you tell me, what, if, what is contentless consciousness? No content. So what we talk about is the content of consciousness, which is, which is uh, its capacity to, to love. That's the idea in bhakti. So it's a kind of a cute way of talking about it, the consciousness of... Yeah, thank you. Consciousness. That was very beautiful. That was a beautiful way of putting it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I wanted to confirm that. That's all. Thank you very much. That's all. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
Okay, um, we have one more. Uh, do we have time for another question? Okay, Hari Chart, it's a Hari Chandan or Chart? I wrote it down, but I. Hari Bol, this is my name. Hari Charandas from Sweden. Uh, so, uh, Hare Krishna Dandavat Maharaj. Uh, my question is like, uh, what are the essential differences between Sri Krishna with and without Sri Mati Radharani? In, uh, yes, what are the essential differences like name, form, pastimes, qualities? Or like this. So we we're not interested in the difference. <laughs> we're only interested in the person next to Radha. <laughs> yeah. But um, excuse me, but um, Krishna is of course the Godhead. He's the object of love, right? perfect object of love. And so there's love and the object of love. So the object of love being Krishna, love is, is the devotee personified. Prem has a form, love has a form. So love of Krishna is sheltered in the devotee and Krishna is the object of that love. So I'm going to give a brief answer because we don't have much time, but Radharani is the fullest expression of love. She's Mahabhav Swarupini. Lakshmi, for example, is a partial manifestation of, of Radha. Other gopis are a partial manifestation. Lakshmi is a partial manifestation of Radha. Sita is, a, is another partial manifestation of Radha. We have their... Ram or Narayan and so on and so forth, right? So Radha is Mahabhav Swarupini. She's the fullest expression of love. And so Krishna standing next to Radha is the fullest expression of Krishna. Hmm? Therefore, that is, that is what we call Swayam Bhagavan, the fountainhead of all forms of divinity. Krishna goes to Mathura or Dwarka, those are expansions of himself hmm? that correspond with the kind of love there, which is different in its intensity from the love in Vrindavan on the part particularly of Arada, whom you're, you're asking about. Um, so just to give a crude example, uh, Krishna in Vrindavan, which is who is completely under the influence of Radha, although he has other relationships, you know, parental relationships, friendly relationships. Um, if we look, you know, carefully, we see he's completely under the influence of Radha. Hmm? You may be in love with a girl and still have a friend, still have parents, but um, the central driving uh, force of your life is is your, your, your love, your, your romantic love, so to speak. So there he is romantically in love with Radha. And in Vrindavan, therefore, this Swarup Shakti 
or bhakti devi is, is more fully manifest. So that there are certain qualities of Krishna in Vrindavan uh, that he won't have in Mathura or in Dwarka. Let's give an example. One of the qualities of Krishna that no other expansion or avatar has is Venu Madhurya. Venu means flute. Sweet Madhurya means sweet. So he has a sweet flute. And there's so much to be said about Krishna's flute. Hmm? So much has been written about Krishna's flute. But in Mathura, he doesn't have a flute. In Dwarka, he doesn't have a flute. In Hastinapur, he doesn't have a flute. Sometimes in those places, he shows four arms. In Vrindavan, he doesn't show four arms. So the absence of the flute, sweetness, and the Aishvari or the majesty of four arms, which creates some distance. This is an example of the difference in Krishna from Krishna with Radharani. You understand? So that's just you know one example. Then you go further down down the line for Krishna, Krishna, Krishna in Mathura, Krishna in Dwarka, and then Krishna as as Narayan, as Ram, Ramchandra, so on and so forth. Obviously, there are differences, right? Obviously, there are differences between Ramchandra and Krishna. Well, that's clear. But even Krishna himself, in Goloka, if you will, between his three major regions, Vrindavan, Mathura, and Dwarka. It's said that Krishna is perfect in Dwarka. He is more perfect in, Vrinda, in Mathura and most perfect in Vrindavan. So some of the qualities of Krishna in Vrindavan will not be manifest. They're all relative to the love of, of, of Radha and the Vrindavan influence where she is, you know, the Vrindavan Ishwari. Ishwari. She's in control. Hmm. So he, she's bringing out those qualities that other forms of love in Mathura and Dwarka can't, can't bring out. Hmm. Certain qualities of his, certain uh, paraphernalia of his, his dear Lalita personality, where he's subjugated by his lovers, uh, 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 and so forth. So does that help? Yes, it's a good answer. Thank you. Okay, it's a brief answer, but I got to the point. I think we're out of time. I appreciate all of your questions and taking the time to uh, give me the opportunity to speak on them. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much. And just everybody to know that on Wednesday, um, Swami Gumaraj will be giving class at two o'clock. Eastern Daylight Savings Time um, on Gadadhar Pandit. So you're all invited to join us again on Wednesday. Hey.